A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. G'day, welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks so much for being here. This is episode 94 of this show with Lee Sales. You can find her on Twitter at L-E-I-G-H-S-A-L-E-S. More about her in a moment. I hope you had a good week. If you do like this show, if you're new to the show, I've got loads of other episodes that you can check out. 93, in fact. 94 if you count the repeat. Um, <laughs> And uh, you can also jump on the mailing list. Uh, I write back to all the mails that uh, you send me. Send Osher email at gmail.com and you subs- you can subscribe to the mailing list at osherginsberg.com. Um, I hope your week is good. I hope whatever it is you're doing is good. I hope that you are addressing the things in your life that are not serving you because if you don't do it today, they just tend to fester and grow. Um, that's the nature of these things. Uh, I went for a bike ride with uh, Luke Heggie today which was bloody awesome. My buddy, Luke, he's a stand-up. He's fantastic. Um, Because I can't run anymore. I've talked about that before. I can't run anymore because I've got a a busted hip, got a torn labrum. But yeah, we went for a a bike uh, bike ride. It was very healthy for my brains. It was very good. Luke's got a, uh, he's got the Rolls Royce of travel bikes. He's got the folding Brompton, which uh, is a bike that folds up about the size of a small suitcase. And it is just brilliant. We took it all the way down a little bay and back, which was a a cracker. We We had lunch in Maroubra. Didn't even have to get the tattoo. It was pretty good. There's a lot going on for me at the moment. I'm not going to lie. It's been a it's it's been one of the most intense fortnights I've had in quite a quite a while. But it does involve uh, a few other people, so I can't really talk about it here. But I, I promise you, it is it is quite heavy. All I can say is that I'm trying to control the things that I can. Um, trying to keep an even keel. Uh, because the other week, I guess. I had the closest thing to a full-on anxiety attack that I've I've had in a while, which is I've got to say it's pretty impressive that the fear managed to break through the layers and layers of medication that I'm on. I was quite impressed with that, as I could feel it coming on. I was thinking, well, just good, good for you. I'm going to need to hold my breath and breathe a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but for the last week, I've been kind of twitching uh, very, very quickly at any kind of triggers even the smallest the smallest version of my trigger is enough to set me off i'm i'm, I'm hypersensitive again and if you you know what i'm talking about if, if this has happened to you the thing that normally sets you off if you if you get run down or, or something else is bothering you your ability to to withstand smaller versions of that trigger are uh, lessened and um the way if, if you've never had an anxiety disorder what it, what it's like i guess is the closest thing i can describe it to is getting stabbed um just under my left rib cage at the same time as having the most painful goosebumps you've ever had. Um, that's about how I'd describe it. That's kind of what it feels like. It's an actual physical reaction. It's not just in my head. It, it actually happens. You see the goosebumps come up on my body. Um, it, it's, it's quite painful and um, it actually takes a while to subside. It takes like 20 or 30 minutes to, to, to relax down. And for those first 20 or 30 minutes, you really can't make much sense of the world. You, you kind of have to keep to what you're doing. Um, I'm not trying to make any big decisions. So it was a good day to ride a bike today, even though it was raining and cold. 
felt good. Uh, but yeah, if you're going through anything similar this week, I, I uh, send you out a hug because uh, I got one this morning. It made things feel a lot better. Let me tell you about my guest today. Lee Sales is my guest today. She is the host of a nightly current affairs news program on the ABC in Australia. It's called the 730 Report. Uh, I do love a TV format that does what it says on the box. I really do. She's on Twitter at Lee, L-E-I-G-H-S-A-L-E-S, at Lee Sales. And she has her own exceptional podcast with her fellow ABC journalist, Annabelle Crabb. The podcast is called Chat 10 Looks 3. Both the numbers in the title are numerals, not spelled out. Um, you can find that in your podcasting app of choice. For folks who aren't in Australia, the ABC is a lot like the BBC in the UK and a little like PBS, I guess, in the US. Uh, it's a public broadcaster. It's taxpayer funded. Uh, there's no advertising and it is beholden to a charter, very strict charter and incredibly strict guidelines on bias and fairness in reporting, despite what a lot of people might think. At the moment, the ABC is under enormous scrutiny with the current right-wing conservative government banning all of its members of parliament from appearing on uh, the up until then very popular live panel discussion show Q&A. Uh, again, a TV format that does what it says on the box. Uh, but yeah, so there's a lot of controversy going on uh, about the ABC at the moment. Lee is an interviewer of exceptional skill. If you've ever seen Lee Sales go head to head with someone in an interview, you can't deny that. She's an interviewer of exceptional skill, depth, and power. She holds no quarter, regardless of who sits across the desk from her. And in her own words, says this about her role as a journalist. She said that my job is to put people on the spot and to pressure people to justify their position. That's what I'm paid to do. If someone doesn't stand up to that, well, that's their problem, not mine. She's full on. She's fantastic. Lee Sales has sparred with the best of them. Countless ministers, prime ministers, heads of state, you name it. Lee fearlessly marches into the mouths of the cannons of political rhetoric and bluster. Regardless if the interviewee is coming from the right or the left, she has an ability to unflinchingly hold her ground. And we do talk a lot about bias in this show. It's very, very interesting in the conclusions that we come to. Thankfully, I never have to do the kind of interviews that Lee Sales does. But I was very lucky that Dom Knight, who's also been on this show, was able to make the introduction to Lee so I could get into the ABC building in Sydney and sit down for a fantastic conversation with one of my TV heroes. This is Lee Sales. Is that going to interfere? No, no, you do whatever you've got to do. So I'm rolling. No, it's cool. I just, we're waiting to hear if Abbott's going to be available for an interview. So oh, my God. My there in case <laughs> oh, I came on the right day. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, well, thanks for having me in your office. Can you tell everybody, because uh, people listen from all over the world, can you tell everybody where we are? Because this building is quite special to me. Um, okay, we are in uh, downtown Sydney, Australia, in the ABC headquarters where I have an office on the ground floor. So we're um, just looking out into a beautiful, sunny, but crisp winter's day. Yeah, it's it's right uh, uh, on the back of Chinatown, as they, yep. would, they would call it. This used to be the bustling kind of, port area of the city oh right and it got know. gentrified and um yeah it was shitsville it's, for years well it's changed even a lot in the well i guess i've been back from overseas for nearly 10 years and when i first came here it was just sort of chinatown really was it now there's lots of groovy little cafes and bars mm. and things opening up and yeah big development over the road so yeah, it's changed this, a lot. this building is very it's uncommon in that it's it's a government-run uh broadcast facility that it's in its charter that it is has to be the of enormously high quality. Oh right. <laughs> so it's just I've worked here. I've shot shows here, and oh, the quality okay, right. of the studios here are just astonishing. Oh, that's good to know because I think they the ABC you know rents out their studio space basically, don't they? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I know Chrissy Swan's show shot here for a while, and so yeah, lots of you sort of bump into some interesting people around the place. But the crews here that I've worked with, I mean, that's the other thing. You, you come here to the ABC. It's a it's a government job, so. I met guys that had swung booms on John Pertwee, Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, I know. Some of the um, old guys have just done some incredible, because also people used to range across, you know, news and then they'd do stints on drama. And so some of the people you work with, you know, shot 
Brides of Christ or Countdown or, you know, whatever. It's amazing. They're very happy to tell you. They're very proud. Just like, yeah. yeah. No, I shot on, on the Iggy Pop Countdown, you know, the yeah. one where he did something something, something terrible. Yeah. Uh, you and I have something in common in that we both grew up in Brisbane. Oh, okay. Brio de Janeiro. Yeah, sure. You know, what, are your, what part of Brisbane are you from? Look, this. there's only one question you ask people from Brisbane, north side or south side. I'm a north sider. Uh-huh. What are you? West. West. Oh, so what suburb? Uh, well, and at, at first, uh, well, when we were little, little, little Fernie Grove. Okay, so that's north side. Okay, yep. but then Kenmore. Yeah. And then Chapel Hill. Yeah, okay. So, so I'm white of... middle class, son of two doctors. Yeah, right, okay. That's where I'm, yeah. <laughs> but we were in the shitty part of Chapel Hill. We weren't in the, in the cool part. We All would right. ride our BMXs around there before they'd uh, built everything because they had cool gutters that you could go up on. Yeah. we There was a lot of time spent on the BMXs growing up. My brother had a BMX. Did you watch BMX Bandits? Match. <laughs> Come on, that's all we did. We spent an entire summer just airborne, no helmets. Like I'm covered in – because I came off my bike the other day. I'm still – I'm 41. I'm still coming off my bicycle. So I've still got scabs all over me. So you you were North Brisbane or what part? Uh, Bald Hills was the suburb. So it was sort of – at the time it was right on the outskirts of Brisbane. But now it's probably a mid-suburb because Brisbane's expanded, you know, it's sort of stretched out so far, halfway up to the Sunshine Coast. Now Brisbane, when we grew up there, because I'm – I think I'm about three months younger than you. Right. So when we grew up there, it was still a big country town. That's what people used to say, and I used to be offended by that because I used to think, oh, it is not. It's a city. Like, of course it's a city. But now, you know, that I've travelled around the world and been to big cities, I think, yeah, it was actually pretty cow town. Yeah, it was. Like my primary school, I was actually back there the other week because I uh, did an episode of Julia Zamiro's show, Home Delivery, uh, Bald Hill State School. You could see farmland from, you know, the school verandas. It was right on top of farmland. Um, And it still is. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So what... What was school like for you? Was it all right? Loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed school, actually. I was a bit of a girly sweat. Um, it was great. We, we moved around a bit because Dad was in the army, so I went to a few different primary schools and then we sort of settled and stayed in Brisbane. But, um, yeah, I loved it. I always, you know, had lots of friends and um, I didn't find it difficult, you know, and I enjoyed the stimulation academically. Like yeah. I liked school. I was one of those kids who liked school. Where was your dad based? My mum was uh, worked for the Australian Army for fifteen years. At, oh right, at one mill at Yoronga. Oh okay, right. At the hospital. There, yeah. Right. Um, he was at so various places in, in Brisbane. He would either be at Waycol or Anogra, um, sometimes at Canungra, which is on the Gold Coast. And then you know he was in. We moved to Singleton. We did some time in Melbourne at the Watsonia Army Base down there. He was in Townsville. So, mm. yeah, all over. Like did he serve? Did he see action? Yeah. Um, he was in Vietnam and then went to Somalia in the early nineties and then East Timor. Boy. So mm. having a dad who does that job is pretty different. <laughs> Certainly he's, a dad that's seen seen action. Well, and he's also, I, I don't know if people like this, you know, get born anymore, but um, also just a really, like, I mean, I can't recall as a child getting a handyman ever to come to the house to do anything. Like dad could just do everything. Mm. And it was in the era too with cars when, you know, they weren't all completely digital. So dad could just completely service his own car and dismantle the engine and put it back together and just that sort of era where you could pretty much, if you needed anything, say, Dad, you know, the tap won't work and Dad will be able to fix it, you know. Did he ever talk about his time serving overseas? No, not really. Sort of a bit of a bit of a no-go zone. Yeah. Was that made fairly clear to you as kids? I think as kids you're not so – well, I certainly wasn't um, – you're not so interested in your parents as actually people. Yeah. Um, they're just your parents. So, yeah, I never even really raised it or had any level of particular interest in it, to be honest. It was more sort of, um, I guess, because we were more focused on, you know, are we going to be moving again and stuff like that. So you sort of, as a child, I think your world is pretty centred around yourself and what things mean for you. So it would be more like, oh, what's Dad doing? Are we moving again and mm. stuff like that? You know? But by the time I got to Somalia, you would have been old enough to go, well, this I, this is hairy, this is scary, you know, bis- my dad's going into danger. Bizarrely enough, I remember that uh, for East Timor, but I can't remember it around Somalia. Yeah. So whether or not, you know, because that would have been about 91 or 92. Yeah, so I've been at university, so it would have been quite old. But I actually, maybe I was, but I just, I can't remember it at all. I remember Dad going off overseas, but beyond that, I can't recall. And so when he went to East Timor? Yeah, I remember that um, because... Uh, 
that seemed, you know, sort of, I mean, it was all pre, of course, 9-11. So the Australian military hadn't had, you know, like now there's constant deployments all the time, but there weren't in that era that many deployments. So I definitely remember that and feeling sort of anxious about that and thinking, geez, I hope it goes okay. Um, And also because by then I was working as a journalist and so I had friends who were going over there to shoot and that sort of thing. So there was sort of more of a So he was quite senior officer? He was then, um, he was the RS. Sam of Interfet, so like the top infantry guy. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So <laughs> a lot of people's, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's inescapable like, what your relationship with your father does to your <laughs> life and what you choose, even as a man, what I choose yeah, in my right. life is related to my father. So when you when you brought boys home in, the, in their <laughs> high school, was he... <laughs> I remember when my husband um, came around for the first time, dad had been given, he'd been working in Townsville and he'd been given as a farewell gift from somebody this huge cane knife. And so he brought it out and showed my husband and said, oh, look, you have a look at my cane knife. And it was really funny because knowing dad, like that was dad's sort of, uh, you know, gambit to be friendly and my husband took it as, hello, I have a cane knife. <laughs> I'm a big, scary military guy with a big knife with a hook on the end of it. <laughs> All my friends love Dad because he's he's a very funny person. Like he's a really good storyteller and he's always had, I mean, he's always doing interesting stuff and interesting things happen to him and he has a really good knack of being able to tell that as an entertaining and amusing story. Um, and he's always just doing, I mean, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but he's always just doing funny and interesting stuff. And so my friends are always wanting to know, his name's Dale. They're always like, what's, what's Dale Sales been up to? And so invariably you'll say, oh, he's been on some road trip and he did this thing, did that, and everyone just finds it incredibly entertaining and funny. Well, speaking of entertaining, what point did music come into your life? So I always loved music right from when I was, you know, as young as I can remember. And then when I was about, probably from about eight or nine, I was begging to learn an instrument. And mum, mum and dad, mum's, oh God, just trying to remember back. I remember there was like rules about, well, you have to be, you have to show a level of commitment and, you know, willingness to practice and things like that. And so we ended up, they had some friends whose daughter learnt the organ from a woman who lived around the corner from us. So that was the sort of entree into them thinking, well, this is pretty easy. It's just around the corner. So we'll let you go off and do that. Um, But the rule was always, you know, if you stop practicing, then we're not going to fork out the money for you to go. But you know, some people who learn music, they end up hating it because they hate the practice and that sort of stuff. Um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, And so it was almost the opposite for me where I'd be constantly playing around on the piano or on the organ and mum would be like, dinner's ready, hurry up, come upstairs. And I'd be not wanting to stop practicing. And that was partly due to the teacher I had was just awesome. She was a great teacher. And so I went in there really loving music and having a lot of enthusiasm for it. And I came out of there loving music more and having the same amount of enthusiasm, which a lot of people when you talk about their childhood music lessons experience, don't have that experience. So she did. She gave me, that's one of the greatest gifts I've ever had, my parents sending me to music lessons and the teacher making me love music more. Was it ever something you wanted to pursue? <sighs> Look, I had a sort of brief moment probably in high school where, because I was always in the school musicals and I loved Which one were you in? <laughs> um, a few. We did one called Man of Steel. My old music teacher Ian Doricott <laughs> wrote that. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I remember the name. Yeah, Ian um, Doricott wrote it. Yeah. Uh, Man of Steel. We had one called the Dracula Spectacular. Um, <laughs> there were Grease we did. Um, were you a, what role were you in Grease? Sandy. Yeah, of course you were. <laughs> um, so now how did we get down that path? Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Did I want to do it as a job? Oh, yeah, so I had a brief moment of thinking, oh, this would be great to do this as a career to be, to be you know, an, an actress or whatever. But I remember talking or to, or to do music, some form of music as a career, but I remember talking to my music teacher about it and she said to me, any job, it was really wise actually, she said any job that you do, even if you start from a position of really loving it and enjoying it, there's days where it becomes a slog and you don't like it and you don't enjoy it no matter how much you, you think you're going to. And so you could choose to go down the avenue of having music as a career um, and then that'll become a bit of a slog to you and then you won't have anything to really escape into because music's like your hobby and your escape. Or you could choose something else as your career and then music will always be the thing that you have as your thing in your life that Mm. you really enjoy. And so I thought that was, I hated the thought of not loving music, so I thought that's better to me. And I think it was also combined with the idea that 
because, you know, we just grew up in an ordinary middle-class family where my parents um, had, you know, they put a, they they both had sort of pretty, um, you know, tough sort of upbringings. They wanted their kids to, you know, get a good education and hopefully go to uni and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think in my mind doing something like music wasn't really a job like that that was a hobby not not an actual job and also we didn't meet you know I sort of worry a bit about my kids now because I think the sort of people that they get to meet are the type of people that I never got to meet so my kids think that people who have a job as a comedian or a writer or a radio broadcaster or someone who's on tv that that's like a normal and viable career option and that anyone can do that whereas actually the reality is I really hope they don't choose that path because it's very, very hard. It's not really a sustainable career for many, many people, but they'll think that, you know, being an artist or something is a viable option, whereas I never met anyone who did that for a job, so I didn't really think it was. Well, I just didn't and we just didn't mix in those sort of, um, I mean, there were, of course, but we didn't mix in those sort of circles. So, yeah, so so music, I didn't really, I really enjoyed it, but I don't think really I ever seriously thought about it as a a job. Do you still keep it as as a release? Yeah, so I still, I mean, I don't. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so frankly, I try never to open the piano in their presence because I don't want them touching it. Because, <laughs> like, you know, it's going to get trashed. Fists and glissandos all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, water being tipped into it and sticky butter fingers all over the keys. Um, so, <laughs> which is sort of terrible in, on one level. Because I'm, I think, on one level, I'd love them to be into music just as long as they're not touching my stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, so I try to, you know, play a bit when they're not there. But, I mean, I'm so out of practice and uh, even things like I noticed, I used to be a really good sight reader of music and yeah. now I'm not so much. And so I hope that I don't completely lose well, the I'm, I'm the same. I could, I was, I was so lazy. I got so good at playing bass that I could sight read during competitions oh, wow. and we would win. Oh, wow. Yeah. But I got that good so I could be lazy yeah, at it. Yeah, not have to practice. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It was a terrible right. way to go about things. I could only imagine what I could have done if I'd applied myself to it. I know. Uh, but you didn't you didn't chase it down, but you, you went to university anyway. You went to QUT, which is at the business end of Brisbane. It's yep. a campus kind of in the shadow of the government building. Yeah. And when you're going to going to school, I, w- I went there for six weeks part-time before I dropped out. Um, but when you're going there, you see the political cars all day and night. Yeah. Big fat white blokes coming in and out of the building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What what was the vibe on campus like then? Look, again, it was probably in that era, again, I wasn't so tuned into the politics of it, which is sort of weird because it was a pretty amazing era. Like, you know, the Goss government had only just been elected after the Bjorki Peterson government had been in fears in Queensland. But again, I was more just sort of focused in my own, you know, everyday world and studying journalism there and my friends that I, you know, had at university. And it was also, you know, I remember that time it was in the recession. Journalism, I mean, compared to now, it was going fine. But it was considered to be, you know, a difficult field in which to get a job. And I remember we were all so anxious that you'd get to the end of the three years and not, you know, interest rates were 16% or whatever. Everyone was worried that you would not be able to get a job. Um, so that my, my lasting memory of that era is that very quickly when I started uni, I thought this is great and I've chosen the right thing. I really love this. I remember I used to go to the what we called the refectory, like the canteen, with my friends from school who were doing law and they would talk about what they were doing and I would think, oh, that is so boring. I couldn't believe how boring what they were doing was. And I found what I was doing super interesting and engaging, which was great. And also um, just the, my friends that I did that course with were just, was mostly women um, and they were just such a great bunch of really smart and fun and interesting people, you know, many of whom I'm still in touch with. So that was just an excellent three years. I really, really What drew you to journalism? Uh, I think... Because you've got to absolutely. make this, this astonishing. You have to make these decisions while you're in high school. I know. Hormones are raging. You want to be where the cute girls or boys are. <laughs> you, want to, you don't know what's going on. You, you want to, do I live my childhood dream? Do I make my parents happy? What are, you know? Well, and, I, you know, I often say to kids now who are doing HSC, the thing you realise when you're older is that there's not any one path to get somewhere. And so, like, I look at kids doing HSC and they're under so much pressure and they feel like they've got to get the mark. That's the grade to, 12 or yeah. the senior year mark. Like, if you're in the States, it'd be your SAT or in, in, in Brisbane, it'd be the OP or whatever. Yeah. It is. Yeah, exactly. Um, And 
they feel like they've got to get the marks to get into university to the course that they've chosen. Well, actually, if you say if you wanted to do, you know, science or something and you didn't get the marks, well, you just go in and you do arts for one year and you transfer over. Like, it's no biggie. Whereas kids get so, the pressure is just absolutely unbelievable. Anyway, so I uh, really loved writing and I really loved reading. But as I said before, that sort of, even though, you know, I would love to be a novelist, that sort of artistic type um, stuff I didn't see as a viable career option. So journalism I thought was about the closest to having a job that involved writing and reading but that was actually a proper job. Mm, right. So, yeah, that was why. Basically. What did you learn at university that you still use today? Actually, it was a really good practically based course. So I remember when I started working feeling like I had some good basic skills, like just about things like, you know, what is this story about? How do you write a basic news lead, the who, what, when, where and why um, just basic skills of television like shot listing, which is where you watch a tape back and you write down every shot with a time code so that when you're in the edit, you know, you can find it later. Um, those sort of my, just craft on that, skills. My favourite one is the just the guy who works at the business or the store or the politician just walking across their lawn <laughs> like they do because they need a cutaway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is me just casually walking because I always walk this way. I know, making a cup of tea. Yeah, the old here. making a cup of tea shot. <laughs> Some exactly. Actuality. Yeah, exactly. So um, just all those craft sort of skills because yeah. really, you know, like a lot of occupations, journalism is a trade. It's not really a, a, well, you know, it is now, but it wasn't really a profession and then it sort of became something you had a university university degree for, whereas only, you know, five or ten years before I went to uni, most people got a cadetship straight out of school and you just learnt mm. on the job like you would if you were, you know, you had a cadetship which was like an apprenticeship like you would if you were a plumber. Yeah. So, yeah, I had got some good basic skills out of that and, and also I think just that university era opens your eyes a bit to just the world of, you know, literature and I remember I read heaps of stuff and it felt like it was a really rich learning time and a time actually of also learning how to learn, if that makes sense, like learning Absolutely. how to teach yourself yeah. things. Yeah, I, I, had, I had no idea. Who was the first, because there's always somebody, who was the first person that said you could make something of this, Lee, you could actually, you could rise above, there's something different about you? I don't know that anyone's ever said to me that overtly um, that that was the case. I remember um, the the man that employed me to come to work at the ABC, John Cameron, his name was, um, had a lot of confidence in me and would give me assignments to do that were probably beyond my level of experience because he trusted that I could do them. And I think often when people treat you like that, you feel loyal to them and then you just kill yourself to prove that their faith hasn't been misplaced. Um, so he was great like that. I remember also some advice at the time that I really bristled against, but in hindsight it was incredibly prescient and useful. I had a, a boss by the name of John Budd when I was about 24, I guess, in, and I'd only just moved to Sydney. And he said to me one day, you are in way too much of a hurry. Like you want everything yesterday and you've got a long career ahead of you and you need to consolidate. And actually you can't just be doing jobs for six months and then thinking, you know, what next? So you need to actually slow down a little bit and, you know, just take your time and enjoy the moment a bit more. And he also said, and you also think that everyone's always on your side and going to help you get what you want. And that's not actually the case and it's a naive way to look at the world. And at the time I remembered bristling a bit to both of those pieces of advice. And then obviously as you get older you realise that was actually really great advice. Um, so I got, you know, I went off to be the Washington correspondent for the ABC when I was 28 because I was in such a stupid hurry. And then I got back when I was 32 and that was the job that I'd really, really wanted to do. And then I got home and I was only 32. So then, you know, what do you do? Yeah. Um, so I try a bit more now to just enjoy what I'm doing at the time instead of thinking, what am I going to do next? Whereas in my 20s, I was always thinking, what am I going to do next? Um, whereas now I just think, you know what, I actually really like doing this job for now. I don't need to worry at the moment about that. You made the you made the jump from commercial television to the ABC. What, mm. what precipitated that and what did you notice different straight away? Um, I... So I'd been at Channel 9 in Brisbane, which was great. And it was, you know, again, in hindsight, it was such a good learning experience because it was all these basic skills of TV that I was learning without actually being on TV. Um, so I had a job as a unit manager. So I was doing everything from rolling the auto queue, answering the phone, researching stories, assigning crews. It was really good broad-based um, look at what 
what happens in TV. But of course, you know, I was ambitious. And I remember one of the bosses there said to me, took me aside and said, you should concentrate on your producing skills because I don't think, you know, your voice and your looks don't quite cut it for an on-air thing, which, um, you know, at the time, obviously, I found really hurtful. But of course, when I look back again now, I think he was totally right. Like I was 21 or 22, I would have been rough as anything. Like I absolutely should have taken that advice and gone away and, you know, sort of addressed those things. Anyway, I the ABC not long after advertised a job and so I thought as a for a reporter and so I thought I'm just going to apply for that and go over there, which is what I did. The main thing I noticed straight away was um, that the ABC compared to Channel 9 had a very unionised work set in a way that I don't think it does now. Like I remember going on a job quite early on and saying to the cameraman and the sound guy, okay, we're going to go here, I'm going to shoot this, then we're going to do that, then we're going to do this. And then at a certain point the sound man interrupted and said, well, when are we getting our lunch break? And that was just completely alien to me that you'd even have any sense that you'd be getting a lunch break, let alone that you'd raise it even if you thought you, you were annoyed by it or whatever. Um, so that was the thing that jumped out at me and there was a, a, a colleague who was sort of heavying me pretty much straight away, are you in the union? No, you know, we should be. So that that sort of leapt out at me. Um, but other than that, it was pretty much, you know, day to day it was the same, you know. Yeah. You're still just going out on the road and going out and doing stories and working with the cameraman and, and all that stuff. The one thing that the ABC is fantastic for and, and has been great for me is because it makes so many programs Career-wise, you have so many options and different paths yeah. that you can go within the ABC. Whereas at, um, if you're in news at seven or nine, there's not or ten, there's not that many different programs or radio or TV or whatever yeah. to go into. Yeah. So, so you, you you're getting work at the ABC. I'm assuming you're down in Tawong. Yeah. 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 In, Tawong in Brisbane, which isn't there yep. anymore. <laughs> Uh, near my mum's house, and I used to catch, used to go to the RE across the street. Yeah, the everyone did. Horrible yeah, the pub. RE, very, very popular pub oh, damn, in I, the day. I did some horrible drinking there. <laughs> um, but then the conversation comes of like, did, you were assigned to Washington as a foreign correspondent, which is, you know, that's the pro leagues for, for anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, what kind of conversations did you have with your friends and your family and those close to you about, I'm off to Washington, this could be for a while, I'm, I'm going outside of maybe some time? <laughs> Look, I had so wanted to do that job and was so interested in America for so long, but I don't think any of my friends or family were surprised when I said, here's what I'm doing. And I think they were all wrapped because they thought, awesome, holidays in America, <laughs> somewhere to stay in Washington, D.C. See, the thing that was surprising about all of that was, um, oh, how homesick I was, which I had not anticipated at all. So the first year I got to a point where I thought, I think I'm going to ask to go home at the end of this year. I can't, I just miss my it's friends too much. It's a weird town, Washington. Yeah. And also, you know how when you're younger, you're constantly changing environments, you know, you're at school and then you're at uni and then you're at your first job and various things and so you're meeting new people all the time and so and everyone else is as well and so everyone's looking for new friends and you're making friends. Arriving in Washington was the first time in my life where I felt like well, I'm finding it really hard to make friends here or meet people because I was working really hard and working odd hours because of the time difference to Australia and by that age like late 20s most people are pretty settled into their friends by then nobody's really in the market for you know, new friends. So that was actually really weird. I sort of found that I missed my family and friends a lot. And I ended up w being one of those people that I needed to build in a trip home to Australia every year. Um, it was the only way that I could survive the time away was to have one trip and basically know when the next trip was, which at the time I felt like, oh, you're such a sook because here you are in the Northern Hemisphere, you're close to everything. And now you're going to use half your leave going all the way back to Australia. But I just needed to. Yeah. Well, while you're over there, you arrived just in time. You covered some pretty grim, mm. pretty grim stuff. Uh, Guantanamo Bay, Hurricane Katrina, mm. the invasion of Iraq. Um, how, and I'm able to, if the news theme comes on, particularly I have, you know, deal with anxiety, I have all <laughs> kinds of weird triggers. I'll just turn it off the radio. Oh, you know? right. How do you, as someone who's exposed to the raw footage, the unedited stuff all day long, how do you go home at the end of the day and mm. catch up with your friends that you missed so much? How mm. do you switch it off? Actually, I now I've found that harder as I've gotten older because I just think life experience brings can bring more compassion and empathy and whatnot. Now, when I'm in seven thirty, if a story comes on. 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That I know is going to be awful. It's about, you know, abused children or animal cruelty or things like that. I just ask them to kill the sound. I just can't watch it. Or I make the floor manager, who's the guy who's in the studio with me, um, talk to me over the top of it so I don't have to hear it. Because I just find things really, I just dwell on things. And you think about, sometimes the thing that I hate in my job is that I sometimes learn information that about the way people behave or treat each other that never would have crossed my mind, that people could act like that or could show such cruelty to their own child. Um, and then I can't stop thinking about it. So the easiest thing for me, I find, is to just duck the details. So say, for example, the Royal Commission into Institutionalised Child Sex Abuse. I pretty much, you know, freely admit, I don't think I've listened to a single story that we have had on the show because I can't bear to hear it. And I don't, I just don't want to be replaying the details of that stuff over and over. Now, I know that that is... um, bad on one level and I and I'm very grateful that there are other people who can go journalists and whatnot who can go and sit in there every day and do that reporting and lawyers who can go through that and help those people um but I know that I'm not one of them I just find that sort of stuff really difficult is that what like how how do you let off that scene because how do, how do you not take that energy home um it's hard, I think. I mean, because that is, I mean, it's stuff that if you were a fire, you worked in the fire department and you're pulling, mm. you know, remains of kids out of car wrecks, which I've yeah. seen, and the, my folks being doctors, we used to have to stop at the side of the road before sure. mobile phones. And I saw more dead bodies by the time I was 10 when we used to drive down at Adelaide. Just you see what's left of a human after a big car wreck. Mm. You, you're eight and you mm. go, oh, okay. There you mm. go. At the end of the day, folks like fire department, ambulance, they have mm. debriefs that's worked into them. Yeah. But if you're here watching that raw footage all day long or, and, and you're just dealing with just this waterfall of, I mean, let's face it, no one's going to write a six-minute news story about how awesome this person was to someone else today. <laughs> no. It's, no, it's, it's here's bad. a horrible thing that happened and it's horrible and we just want you to know that it's horrible. Yeah, I mean, you talk to your colleagues about it a bit, of course. I think the media generally has gotten better at acknowledging that counselling is required for mm. people who do, you know, these sorts of distressing stories. I think women are pretty good because we tend to naturally want to just talk to our friends about everything and blab everything yeah. out and whatnot. So, you know, I, I do talk to my friends about things if they've bothered me. Um, but there definitely is a level where you try to detach from stuff a little bit. And I also think, to be honest, that the this immersion in just tragedy and negativity and all these horrible things will probably be the thing that eventually I'll just get tired of that and Mm. that will probably be the thing that pushes me out of the type of journalism that I do. It'll be a question of, you know, how long do I want to every night of the week sort of be immersed in that up to my up to my neck um well the fact that you are affected by it means that you you, you still care about yeah. the job if you just read the auto cue and then clocked off at the end of the day yeah that would be worrying i yeah. think if you i mean if i could present a story about some poor child having been raped by a priest and not feel an emotional connection to it then i reckon that would be a real warning sign that there's a problem there but you know at the same time you've got to keep it together as well because I think in my role my demeanour sends a message to the audience about, you know, what to think about this or how to respond to things. So you can't, and, and also to the as a measure of respect to the person, say if I'm interviewing somebody about something hard, um, I don't want to turn it into being about me 
because I'm crying or upset about something. So I interviewed, for example, earlier this year, Betty Churcher, who was the former head of the National Gallery of Australia, who's a really awesome, wonderful woman. And she was dying of cancer. She didn't know how long she had left. It turned out she'd had only three weeks and she wanted to do just one final interview about her life and her love of art and how she felt about dying and whatnot. It was a really amazing interview and she was, you know, it was very affecting. And I, when I'd been a young reporter and I'd first moved to Sydney, I'd been on the arts round when Betty Churcher was the head of the National Gallery. And she was, she was just one of those amazing people that I just thought she was fantastic. She was quite striking looking. She had this really silver sleek bob and she had this great passion and enthusiasm for art. I just, I really thought she was the bee's knees. And so then, you know, 20 years later, to see her, she still was an amazing looking woman. She still had the sleek silver bob, but she was frail. And to know that she was doing this interview with me and then, you know, was was dying, it was really, really affecting. And then when I had to say thank you to her at the end for doing the interview, I was really struggling to speak because I thought this is the last time anyone's ever going to say thank you for joining us, the last time she's ever going to be on television, someone whose career has been about communicating, you know, this is the last time. And there's not that many times in your life when you know that something's the last time. Sometimes in hindsight you realise that was the last time, but uh, that was, you know, Mm. the last time. And I really could have just broken down and bawled my eyes out, but I thought, well, it's not about me It's and it's about Betty wants to have, you know, a dignified final public bow and so let's just keep it in check. And so... You know, sometimes with things like that, I'll keep it in check while I'm there and then get in the car and have a bit of a sook. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's understandable though. That's that's how people, you know, you wouldn't be human if, yeah, you, if pres- you didn't have that. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't be human if you didn't have that. Exactly. You've also, you've written about some pretty grim stuff, You're particularly de- Detainee 002, the, mm. the book about David Hicks. Mm. Knowing what you know from researching and writing that book, how does that, you know, make you feel about what you know about the enormous power of of governments around the world and what the people think mm. is is what's going on. But in particular, like, and this is relevant to what a, a current story in Australia at the moment, where they're saying that if you're an Australian and you go overseas to, you know, you fight in wars, you know, that engage in terrorism, mm. well, you can't come back. Yeah, um, which is pretty heavy. Um, but in particular, like, did it? I guess what I'm asking is like, how do you then still just go out in the day and go, hey, kids, the sun's shining, let's go play, even though the government's really fighting? Because a lot of um, people like me just get to turn off, but you're out there, you're just seeing it every day. Look, the the interesting thing about all that stuff is I look at how far the debates come from when I first started reporting that sort of thing. So initially, because there was like straight away after 9-11, moves to introduce stricter national security laws. And there was, you know, backlash straight away from civil libertarians and stuff like that, and particularly in terms of Guantanamo Bay people complaining that they were not getting a right to a fair trial and all the rest of it. I remember when I came back to Australia in 2006, they had introduced these things called control orders, which meant that if you'd been convicted of a terrorism offence or charged with a terrorism offence, you could be put under sort of fairly strict um, orders where the federal police were aware of your movements and stuff like this. And I remember that was really, really controversial. Now 10 years on, that just looks like basic common sense. Like it doesn't even seem controversial. So that to me, it's interesting how far the debates actually shifted now to the level of things that we talk about and and we debate to do. The other thing that um, just blows my mind is, you know, when I arrived in the U.S., Late 2001, Guantanamo Bay was up and running in early 2002. If you said to me that I'd be sitting here in 2015 and some of the same people that were there in 2002 would still be there and still would never have had a trial in 13 years, I just would not have believed that that was even possible. But how I got started reporting on David Hicks was because we just thought, oh, well, that'll be resolved pretty soon. And so went through my whole posting and he was still there and unresolved when I left and then when I got home and it just went on and on and on. So... The whole Guantanamo Bay thing was really an interesting lesson in the difficulties for governments in this area of terrorism in terms of, and the consequences of you, you take one step and then you sort of get snookered and stuck and what do you do with these people? And, yeah, it's a really, really complicated, difficult area. Well, I don't, I'm glad I don't have to. <laughs> I've got to put my glasses on because there's something that I, would, I do want to ask you and I, I don't want to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, because it's a quote of yours, uh, you've said, and I, I personally do like this, you've said that my job is to put people on the spot and to 
pressure people to justify their, their position. That's what I'm paid to do. If someone doesn't stand up to that, well, that's their problem, not mine. Is that what you go into each day with? Yeah, pretty much. And so I think it's my job. If you have an opinion and if your opinion is worth having or if you want to pursue a particular policy, well, then how worthwhile can it be or how good can it be if it can't stand up to basic scrutiny? So anyone who comes on, I'll sort of step back and think, okay, what are the holes in their argument and how do I sort of press them to see if they can actually explain away those holes? And so from my perspective, the best interviews are the ones where I've thought, okay, here's the holes, and then the person actually is able to bat away my questions really effectively. And I don't mean people just stonewalling. I mean the people who actually try to persuade you and address what you're saying. If I get to the end of it and I feel like you know, I've sort of got nothing left to ask because they've really effectively addressed all of that, I think that's a good interview. And I think it serves the other person's purpose as well because if viewers at home are persuaded that, oh, well, she gave that person a pretty tough going over and they've actually answered it and acquitted themselves pretty well, then surely that makes their position more persuasive and they're more likely then to persuade the public to, you know, come along with whatever it is they're doing. It, it always amazes me how much viewer feedback I get from people to say how much they hate politicians not answering questions and how obvious it is to people. I can't stand it. Yeah, it's just I was, viewers hate well, it. Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But um, the ABC, not unlike the BBC in the UK, operates to a charter mm. and there's very, very strict guidelines that other broadcasters don't need to really mm. adhere to regarding um, fair and balanced report, actual fair and balanced, not Fox News fair and balanced, but actual fair and balanced reporting. Mm. How would you describe the process that you go through in preparing for an interview to make sure that you present a, a, a well, I guess a neutral, you come from a neutral space? Yeah. Look, I try really hard to, look, luckily for me, I'm not personally a very political person and generally I don't have very strong views on most issues. So I don't feel like there's many issues where I have to put aside my own personal thinking on them. Um, but generally I just try to think, I, I try to just approach it from a really rational intellectual, pragmatic perspective rather than any sort of ideological perspective. So so as soon as I find myself thinking, oh, well, that's just wrong, that's a warning sign to me that that's my personal opinion creeping in because words like right and wrong or moral or immoral, that's, you know, a real value judgment. So I try to just divorce, you know, my sort of process from that. So so for me it's very much a logical thing. Well, you know, if, if the interviewee says A, are the consequences going to be B or C? And then I try to just address it from that sort of a, a a way of looking at it. And also then there's a, and you have to sort of judge it in the moment when you're doing the interview, how often do you interrupt? When do you pull somebody up? Um, what, you know, what's, I guess, fair in terms of, you know, how much you let the other person speak and whatnot. And they're all things you have to decide on the run. So it's quite hard to quantify how I make that decision. But generally it boils down to if I think they're actually addressing the question that I ask and engaging, then I'll tend to let them go. Um, and I also try to, if I am cutting someone up and inter cutting someone off and interrupting a lot, I will sometimes say, look, the re sorry to interrupt. The reason I'm interrupting is because I think that our viewers would be interested to know, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And then that sort of signals to the talent you're annoying, you're not annoying me, you're annoying yeah. a million people who vote for you. So try to make a connection yeah. with them. And it's also flagging to the audience, don't be annoyed at me interrupting. Here's what I'm trying to do on your behalf, yeah. basically. So, yeah. I think a lot of it, certainly for me, and I'm, I'm not asking you to agree or disagree with me, but certainly um, a lot of it for me comes from where I stand and my bias when I view, like say, for example, let's go back seven years when the last government was in and someone's, grilling a Labor politician about right. the, the proposed carbon tax. And I'm going, finally, yes, great. Get off his back. Stop, <laughs> stop annoying him. He's fine. Stop, stop being so rude. We need this. We need this. And then when I see you slicing up the treasurer after the latest federal budget, I'm like, fuck yeah, have that hooky. <laughs> But that's my bias. That's, that's the way I look at it. That's how everyone looks at it. Um, so, yeah, I find from 
interview to interview, you know, different people like an interview and then they get cranky at a, at a certain interview. But it's all, you know, I was talking to my producer before about the killing season, the documentary that's on at the moment about the last Labor Pretty government. awesome. It's amazing. But we were talking about how we think, you know, Rudd and Gillard are coming out of it and she had the exact opposite opinion to me. We're watching the same material but we have the exact opposite opinion as to who's coming out on top. Um, so... Yeah, it's, it's so unbelievable, you know, what people actually take. Even from the same interview, some people will say, like that Joe Hockey Budget Night interview, some people will say, oh, that was way too hard and you were out of line, and other people will say, you, you're such a liberal lover, you gave him a free run. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, I know what it's like when a big pop star is coming on a show. I've been on enough shows where, like, we have to lock the set down and we have to make sure this kind of water's in the room and don't ask these questions, do ask those yeah. questions, da 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 What's it like when you're prepping for, for example, when the Prime Minister's coming on? Like how, who who calls first? I mean, as we sat down, <laughs> yeah. as soon as I rolled, you said um, well, we're just seeing if the Prime Minister's yeah, going to come on Yeah, just checking if there's, been any, if there's been a message, a word, from, uh, word from him. Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> so... Um, who calls first? Do they call? Do you call? Sometimes it depends. It's sort of sometimes one way, sometimes the other. I'd say more often than not, it's us asking. But every now and again, they'll ring and say, "Would you like to have the prime minister tonight?" To which the answer is always yes. Um, so there's a lot of jockeying around for, um, you know, who should we get today? And sometimes Polly's ring and they want to come on. Like I just noticed when I've looked at my email, I've been trying to get Malcolm Turnbull for a few days. And while we've been talking, my producers texted me to say Malcolm Turnbull's doing an interview with Peter Van Onselen now, which makes me think, Malcolm, that's really annoying because I've been talking to you for days. Why are you doing that instead of coming on my show? So, um, you know, it's competitive and 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 whatnot. Um, so, yeah, there's a bit of, bit of negotiation, you know, in both directions on that stuff. And what's the pre-interview like? Is it a bit like is it like Frost Nixon where you'll sit around <laughs> at the Beverly Hills Hilton with whiteboards and like plan out how you're gonna do it? Yeah, I do I mean I do a bit of that. If you flick through my notebook, you'd see a bit of sort of flow charts of here, I'm gonna do this and, and if they say that, then I'll do this. Um depends on the interview and what the subject is. A political interview, I will war game it a bit in terms of thinking okay, here are the subjects I want to touch on. I'll ask this. They probably will say that and so therefore I'll do this, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the most awkward thing with it all is actually the aftermath of the interview where you might have had a really tetchy interview with someone and then you've moved into the next item and then it's like, oh, well, thanks very much for coming in. Nice to nice to see you. Oh, great. Yeah. And so that's always really awkward and excruciating. That's their job. <laughs> yeah. It's still just it's weird because socially it, it's such a different interaction to a social interaction because if I were interacting with you socially, I would never in a million years say, Osha, I asked you what you had for lunch. You're not answering the question. I would just let you, if you didn't answer it, I just would let you politely yeah. go. Whereas in an interview, you know, I'm cutting people off all the time. So there's a level of um, just interaction that is not representative of it, just a normal social interaction. And not, But these aren't normal people. What's it like going head to head no. with someone who's like, well, you know, their first superpower is, is charm. Yeah. To be honest, and, and, and redirection. And then as, as I was parking in my car, you, you mentioned um, uh, people not answering the question. I always wondered, like, do they speak to their wives this way or do they speak to their husbands this way? Well, honey, I didn't take the trash out, but I'll have you know, your ex-boyfriend took the trash out way less than me. So the amount of trash I'm taking out is double. So therefore... Let me watch my TV. I do it to my husband a little bit where I'll get home from work and, you know, the dishwasher won't have been stacked and I'll say, well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said this morning that you would stack the dishwasher. And he'll say, well, I got busy. And I'll say, no, no, but I appreciate that you're busy. We're all busy. But did you or did you not say this morning that you would stack the dishwasher? And so, um, yeah, I do it, find myself doing that a little bit at home sometimes. Uh, I think that when I'm interviewing a politician, I think – to me, it feels like an even interaction because um, they are trained basically to deal with somebody like me and they have armies of staff who prep them and, and help them try to think of what I'm going to ask and, and whatnot. So that to me feels like, well, I should go as hard as I can because they've got an army of people helping them out and they are elected on behalf of the Australian people and so they should be pressed on what they're doing. The trickier ones are people that, you know, some poor bugger 
finds themselves in a media storm because their child has gone missing overseas or um, been captured, you know, there there was a family in Brisbane whose daughter was a lawyer and she was being detained in Syria or Libya or somewhere a while back. Um, now, those are people who feel like they have to get out in front of the media because they want to try to keep the case out there, but they're not media trained and they don't have armies of people yeah. who know how to handle the media. So those ones make me less comfortable because I feel like it's not an even mm. interaction basically. You know, I've got more skills and bring more knowledge into it than what they do. I think when when politicians don't answer a question on your show or any show, I feel personally, I feel just so disrespected and I feel my intelligence so completely insulted. Yeah. It's like just your that's your job yeah. is to do this. I don't care if your political leanings don't agree with mine, but your job is to do this, not blame the person that had the job before you as to why the shitty job you're doing is better than that. I think job. a lot of viewers feel like that. that's the feedback people give me, you know, like by far the most, the, the question that I get asked most commonly by people is why don't politicians answer the questions? And that must, you must find that very frustrating. And so I don't know for pollies why a lot of them keep doing that sort of technique of just stonewalling all the time because it really annoys people. Waste their time. Yeah, it does. Why and you could use time? that time to be trying to persuade people. And this is airtime that people add up, mind you, to make sure that, you know, the ABC isn't being biased. Yeah. People put this airtime together. Well, and it's also on our show, it's a mass general primetime audience. So there's a million people. They're not people that have already got rusted on Labor or Liberal views. They're people who maybe have flipped around all of the networks, um, nothing else that they want to really watch. So they've come in 7.30. They happen to see Tony Abbott on. There's your opportunity. That person's a swinging voter. So there's your opportunity to win yeah. them over, you know. So it's important to to use the space well. How does it feel for you? And it just gives me the, it gives me the ear. This is, hi, welcome to Osh's things and the things annoy him about Lisa Alshaw. Um, You say, Mr. Prime Minister or uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Hockey, and they go, well, look, Lee, uh, <laughs> right. well, the thing is, Lee, it's just matters. I, look, I wonder, occasionally someone will call me Ms. Sales. I remember the Deputy Secretary of State, former Deputy Secretary of State in the US, Richard Armitage, always calls me Ms. Sales. Um, the, look, I always just call them Mr. or Ms. or Minister or whatever because I think that the that's polite, you know, um, to do that. There was there was a time recently where there was a two university vice chancellors and the, a young girl who was the head of the student, like a union or association or something, talking about um, education reform, and the two. Uh, vice chancellors kept referring to her by her first name, and I thought, well, hang on, that's not fair because I'm addressing you guys by your title. You should address her, and I was calling him Ms. Whatever her name was as well. Um, I just think it's better to try to equalise it like that, and it also makes me seem not too friendly with them. Like they're not mm. my mates; they're actually yeah. you know people yeah. in yeah, title absolutely. positions. So. so, do you do you struggle to keep a straight face when people aren't answering the question after a while? No, sometimes I struggle just when people are being a bit mischievous, like, you know, just mentioning Malcolm Turnbull. He was on the show a while back and it was when the sort of leadership thing with Tony Abbott was going on and, and I was a bit mischievous. I asked a question, something like, tell me what you consider to be the Prime Minister's attributes. You know, what are the great things about him as Prime Minister? <laughs> and so I was being a bit naughty. And then Malcolm Turnbull replied by saying, oh, Lee, Lee, look, I mean, where would I even start? I mean, there's just so many. We'd be here all night. We just don't have time. Um, and I had to laugh, like, because it was just so funny. Um, so every now and again I I um, have a sort of little giggle. There was another one recently that I just thought was legitimately funny where Barnaby Joyce was the guest. And I was giving him a series of hypotheticals that I was setting up by saying, okay, you're in your electorate, somebody comes up to you and they say, listen, Barnaby, I voted for you, but you've really let me down because you said that you wouldn't do ABC and now you're doing it and I feel disappointed. And so we kept running through this and then I'd be like, okay, now somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, I voted for you, but I'm upset about childcare because you changed your policy. Anyway, after I'd rattled off about four of these questions, Barnaby answered by saying, look, by this point in the day, I'm just thrilled that four people in a row have come up to me and said they voted for me. <laughs> <laughs> And I had to laugh at that. That was legitimately funny. I yeah, had yeah. to laugh. <laughs> One of my favourite moments of, of your show, and you've been on the 730 Report for a while now, was when uh, an Australian broadcasting icon commented on another Australian broadcasting icon, Alan Jones, the uh, conservative broadcaster over on uh, the AM brand, said something quite horrible about our female Prime Minister. And for a word on that, you went to another uh, <laughs> 
broadcasting legend John Laws. Now, John Laws is essentially, he's like the, the king of talk radio in this country. <laughs> yeah. And we cut to John in his living room, right where he lives on the Woolamaloo Finger Wolf next to Russell Crowe, and he's got Elvis sunglasses on. He's in a scarf. He's got this ridiculous ring and a masterpiece theatre chair, nestling a freshly poured Jack and Coke. <laughs> How that do you not gold. <laughs> Oh, that was just gold. And that was actually pre-recorded, that interview, at about 5.30. And as I was sit- settling into the studio, I could see John sitting there. It was also the, the way the shot was set, his window was behind him and you can see the naval. Uh, the naval base is behind him. Yeah. yeah, and so it looks like almost like John's personal collection of battleships out the window <laughs> behind him. Um, and I could see he had the sunnies on and he had the drink and I was thinking, please, God, don't let him take that off or put the drink down before we start rolling and don't let the cameraman say, oh, Mr Laws, would you mind? You know, da, da, da. Um, So I was ecstatic when he just kept it there. And he also, I mean, that was just so gold, that interview. He also, when the interview started, he sort of did this very theatrical thing where he sort of took the sunnies off for a moment and it was just so great. It was great television. He was such a showman. And then at the end he said something like, I said, well, thanks very much, Mr Laws. And he said, was was it good for you? And I said, it was good for me. How about you? And he went, it was marvellous. He said something, I can't remember, but it was very funny. We live in a very, very changing time in in, in, just in our industry and I tell people every day, people say, oh, why are you, why are you doing podcasting? Why do you do this? I'm like, well, television as I know it won't exist in five years. It mm. absolutely won't. There's mm. no broadcasting as we know at the moment that YouTube or, or Google or um, Crikey, even uh, you know, whoever decides to pay for the sport, Mm. Uh, If Netflix were to buy the NFL, which they could probably afford to by now, Mm. TV's over. Mm. That's it. When you see our industry, what do you see the future of our industry, particularly in the world of news where people are getting their news more and more in places like Facebook? Yeah, I think this show won't exist in its current form. You know, I wouldn't put a time frame on it, but certainly in 10 years. Um, because people want to watch stuff on demand. Like the idea of scheduled television, the idea that you will switch on your television at 7.30 at night is just not going to occur. So for a show like mine, what you have to be able to do is offer something that people haven't already had all day um, on their mobile devices or whatever. So you can't just give a recap of the news. You're going to have to give some content that's actually something fresh. So, for example, an interview with the Prime Minister or something like that that can stand alone as a piece of content, you know, that could that could work. Where people click on it or access it, you know, I don't actually know. Um, so I think... The there's two sort of trends I think that are a little at odds with each other. One one is the idea of wanting to watch stuff on demand, but the other is the idea that social media creates this notion of event television and people want to talk about things, you know, as they're happening. And so there's a little bit of, I guess, contradict, contradictory um, elements to those two things. Um, I think also in the news business, say a show like 7.30, after that, that particular day has gone. I mean, no one's going to want to click on iView and watch 7.30 report from last week. You know, it's very much a product of its moment, whereas there's other shows like Julia Zamiro's show that I spoke about before where you could easily watch episodes of that from three years ago today. So certain shows have a a greater shelf life. So probably content-wise we'll be looking to do things that have some sort of life, you know, that extends beyond the sort of, you know, few hours in, in which it occurs. But I don't know because also, you know, money, Think to do quality costs money. So, you know, there's a question in my mind about where is the money going to come from to deliver the sort of quality that people want, especially for local Australian content because we have a small audience basically. So, you know, the pool of available money and the size of the audience is much smaller than, say, in the US. So I don't know. I'm sort of you know, a bit like the the contradictory trends I mentioned, I'm a little on one hand pessimistic about the future of the industry, of, of the journalism, I guess, in particular and the media because I just don't know where it's all going. I hate the idea that it might become all opinion-based rather than actual factual reporting. What do you mean might become? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then at the same time I think, you know, like look at us just sitting here with a couple of mics and you're able to completely make your own content with a minimal amount of mm. effort and get it out there to find an audience that you can directly reach. So that's also on one level quite exciting and interesting that if you've got a product that you think is worth selling, you don't have to persuade some media executive of that. You can just get it out there and try to build an audience yourself. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's exciting but, but you know, scary at the same time. So... Final question, because I know I've got very limited time. Um, <laughs> final question is what 
what would you say to people about how they discern their news? Because news comes at them as this endless fountain out of their mobile every day, 24-7, from an echo chamber of people they only wish to follow so that it it, it reinforces their already perhaps not correct opinions about some particular things, climate change. Um, What would you say to people about how do they discern their news? I mean, I think you have to be very wary trusting sources of news that have a vested interest or who barrack for one side or the other. So you're not going to get reliable facts out of somebody like, say, Andrew Bolt, who is a, you know, right-wing, unapologetically right-wing backer of the Abbott government. So you have to be very careful trusting somebody like that. And if you do choose to read him, we'll read more broadly so that you get some context around that. So I I tend to think the answer is to try to read as broadly as you can. And so hopefully you do get a sense of things. These days as well, I mean, you can get to so many primary sources. So if you want to know, say, this government's citizenship bill that it's introducing, you'll be able to get to the briefing paper yourself. You don't need to rely on me to tell you about it or Andrew Bolt to tell you about it. You can go and have a look at it yourself. So for people who are genuinely interested in in, um, news and current affairs, you know, there's a lot of primary sources basically available now that you can access. So, yeah, I think it, it, it's hard because, as you say, we've all got our preferred voices that we like listening to that we think, you know, and, and the reality is that if you're, a fan, Andrew, if you're a fan of Andrew Bolt, you probably think he is middle of the road and fair and balanced and whatnot. Um, he thinks I'm biased, whereas I think I'm fair and balanced and middle of the road. So, you know, it's all sort of in the eye of the beholder a bit, but I, I caution people against trusting people who are unashamedly, you know, partisan because you're just not going to get facts, basically. Mm. I, I'm going to take your photo very quickly. <laughs> it's now 1.25. What are the next six hours for you? So I'll probably send a cranky text message to Malcolm Turnbull. <laughs> That's going to be my first order of priority. Uh, I I know that we have an interview lined up for tonight with Peter Dutton, the Immigration Minister. That's if the Prime Minister hasn't come through. So I'll now prep for that. I've got to nip out of here at four o'clock to quickly get my children from daycare and drop them home um, and then scoot back, get made up uh, and then do the show and, you know, then go home and collapse. <laughs> it's pretty busy, especially having the three-year-old and the one-year-old. It's just mad. Well, for you taking an hour out of your day, I can't <laughs> thank you enough. Thank you so much, Lee. Thanks. Thanks, Osha. No worries. That was Lee Sales. You can find her on Twitter at L-E-I-G-H-S-A-L-E-S. Let her know that you heard her here and also check out her excellent podcast, Chat 10 Looks 3. Thanks again for checking out the show. Be sure to listen to Movember Radio this week. I've got some great guests on the way, including Dom Purcell from Prison Break. His story will absolutely blow your socks off. In the meantime, try and get some good nutrition in. Try and get 30 minutes of exercise a day. You know, I've talked about it before. Just put the first part of this podcast on and walk around the block. You'll be back before you know it. And try to get those eight hours sleep in. Those three things can change a lot about your life. Hug someone close to you today. And if you haven't got someone close to you, perhaps it's time to look into that. Perhaps it's time. We are social animals. We do better when we're together. Talk to you next week. My guest will be Naomi Simpson. I'm very, very excited about bringing you that chat because it's uh, really good. Until then, have a good week, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things.